Welcome to Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you in-depth interviews with the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their names, and you definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories. You can hear all our episodes, check out our bonus content, sign up for our email list, and contact us directly at songcraftshow.com. Also, please take a moment to like us at facebook.com slash songcraftshow and follow us on Twitter at songcraftshow. You're listening to Michael Bublé's rendition of the number one hit, At This Moment, written and originally recorded by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Billy Vera. Vera is a multifaceted performer, songwriter, actor, producer, band leader of the Beaters, and entertainment industry renaissance man. He's written numerous hit singles, including Mean Old World by Rick Nelson, Make Me Belong to You by Barbara Lewis, and Dolly Parton's number one country single, I Really Got the Feeling. He made his charting debut as an artist on Atlantic Records with the self-penned top 20 R&B single Storybook Children, a groundbreaking interracial duet with Judy Clay. Other Billy Vera songs of note include Bonnie Raitt's recording of Papa Come Quick, Jody and Chico, and Room with a View, a modern blues classic that's been recorded by Eric Burden, Johnny Adams, and Lou Rawls, who released a handful of albums co-produced by Vera. The long list of additional artists who've covered Billy's songs includes The Shirelles, Robert Plant, Fats Domino, Don Williams, Gregory Isaac, Etta James, Nona Hendricks, Tom Jones, Little Milton, Steve Goodman, and George Benson. Vera launched his acting career with an appearance in the cult classic film Buckaroo Banzai and went on to appear in Oliver Stone's The Doors, the Bruce Willis movie Blind Date, and TV shows such as Alice, Baywatch, Boy Meets World, and Beverly Hills 90210. A noted music historian, Billy has produced over 200 reissue albums, earning multiple Grammy nominations and a 2013 win for his work on the Ray Charles box set Singular Genius, the Complete ABC Singles. His historically oriented radio show, Billy Vera's Rock and Roll Party, earned him a Peabody Award for Excellence in Radio Broadcasting and led to a career as a voiceover artist. He is the voice of major advertising campaigns by Burger King, Honda, Toyota, Mercury, and others, as well as the singer of TV show theme songs including Empty Nest and The King of Queens. He was honored with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and tells the remarkable story of his varied career in the new memoir, Billy Vera, Harlem to Hollywood. Well, we got a really good episode coming up today, but uh, first we got this Vince Gill contest, which is a special one. Yeah, absolutely. We're doing the the signed Vince Gill CD, but not only signed, personalized, personalized. to the winner. So um, I thought we'd have a little fun today. So, Paul, I have this uh, deck of cards right here. This is a, uh, a standard yep. deck of cards. No, no trick cards here. But in the spirit of Billy Vera's song, If I Were a Magician, recorded by Lou Rawls, <laughs> what I did, this is the, we've had more response to this contest than any contest we've had. Yep. And I wrote the names of the entrants on this deck of playing cards. So... Can I just tell you that if you want to do the magician thing and save yourself a lot of work, you could have put the names in a top hat. <laughs> but um, it's fine. If you wanted to write on an entire deck of cards, that is your business. Well, now I feel foolish. So, but yeah. So uh, let's get right to it. I'm yeah. going to I'm gonna have you... Uh, don't, don't peek. I'm just going to have you pick a card here. All right. I got this card here. All right. The name is Kimber Vouture. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Vouture. Kimber Vouture. Is that French? Uh, I don't you know. can't answer, but um, <laughs> so congratulations. What card uh, is it? It is 
the Jack of Spades. Is this is this your card? <laughs> yeah, with the one in my hand, yes. This is my card. Um, so congratulations, Kimber. Um, enjoy that. It's going to be really cool. It'll take us a minute to get that out because obviously Vince has to uh, sign it. But Kimber, we will uh, contact you and get that in the mail to you as soon as yep. we get it from Vince. So congrats. That's a very cool, very cool winning. And we may just have him do your first name because... I don't know how to pronounce your last <laughs> but, um, uh, and you know, actually we've got another giveaway coming up too with this episode. Billy Vera has a brand new book out and, uh, it's called from Harlem to Hollywood. And so we're going to do another contest with this episode. And, um, the winner is going to get a signed copy of Billy Vera's book. I so, uh, yeah. So go to our website, songcraftshow.com backslash contest to enter that drawing for uh, an upcoming episode. And today is another episode that's brought to you by our friends at Pearl Snap Studios. And you hear people say that a lot, our friends, blah, blah, blah. But Justin at Pearl Snap Studios really is a friend. Um, he's a guy I've worked with um, and does great work uh, for any kind of demos that, that you may need. Uh, Justin's your guy. Yeah, I was thinking about, you know, Billy Vera had a number one country song with Dolly Parton. He had a number one pop song with At This Moment, where he, of course, was the writer and the artist. He's had uh, R&B charting songs. He's a guy who's played in a lot of uh, genres. And um, that's that's the, the kind of thing that um, when there are people who are, are writers, great writers are often writing in all sorts of different genres. Yep. So if there are aspiring writers out there that want to see your demos come to life, you might have one that's a, a total country song and the, and the next one is a complete pop song and the next one's a hard rock song uh, whatever it is uh, Justin and those guys can can hook you up whether you live in Nashville or whether you are halfway around the world they can work remotely so yep. um, I definitely encourage our listeners if they're if they're looking to get some of their musical vision uh, into uh, an actual tangible recorded form that's a great option. Yep. And uh, you, you get $25 off if you mention that you are a Songcraft listener. So, yeah, head to uh, pearlsnapstudios.com and check them out, see what they have to offer. We feel uh, great about those guys, and we feel great about Billy Vera. Yep. And, you know, speaking of working remotely, we didn't have to work remotely with this episode. Billy came here. He was only our second guest after Trent Dabbs to come to the Songcraft World Headquarters here in Inglewood, yep. California, and it was uh, an honor to uh, to have him here with us. It was it a lot was of fun. Great. Yeah, we had to straighten up a bit, but we were glad to have him. So, uh Let's get in and hear the interview. Let's do it. Billy, welcome to Songcraft. Thanks for having me, man. So when you were growing up in New York, uh, your father, Bill McCord, was a staff announcer for NBC, and your mother was a backup singer on the Perry Como show. What advantages do you think that environment instilled in you as a kid in terms of thinking of the entertainment world as a career path? Well, having parents in show business, um, you, you get to see what professional show business people are like. Mm. You know, so I've noticed over the years that the uh, children of show business people tend to be more professional. They show huh. up on time. Mm. You know, they don't have, uh, usually don't have as big attitudes right. know, and, uh, and things like that. Right. Yeah, showing up on time, it's such a novel concept, isn't it? <laughs> These days it is. But, you know, I, um, the first manager I ever had, uh, a fellow named Jim Gribble, who managed a lot of doo-wop, the Earls, those kind of groups. I, I was waiting in his uh, outer uh, office one day, and I heard him yell out, Where the hell are those goddamn Earls? I don't give two shits for anybody that ain't 15 minutes early. Wow. And as a 16-year-old, that scared the wow. shit out of me. And so I, I just, 
ever ever after that, I was always 15 minutes early to every. <laughs> right, right. That's good advice. That's really funny. Yeah. Well, in your book, you talked about going with your mom to uh, dress rehearsals at the Perry Como show and um, taking note of the song pluggers who were kind of hanging out by the stage door and, and they were pitching songs to, to Como and his guest artists. Um, that feels like a very different world than what we know today in terms of how music publishers operate. As someone who ultimately became a songwriter, kind of talk about your impression when you were a kid of those guys and, and their approach to, to plying their trade and how that's kind of different than how things are done now. Well, in those days, a publisher, uh, they saw their, their job as to get songs recorded by as many artists as possible. Yeah. It wasn't uncommon uh, when I first started buying Cashbox and Billboard to see six or seven versions of the same song right. on the charts at the same time. Yeah, and were these were those guys in those days that were kind of out there slinging the songs? I mean, were were these guys that when the artists saw them coming, they're like, oh geez, or were they kind of <laughs> anxious to see like, hey, what do you got for me? I think both. I, you know, they songs got recorded in those days by uh, an artist by um, a couple of methods, you know, you, they would approach the, um, the, the A&R man, right. artist and repertoire, and sometimes those A&R guys at record labels, they had a little scam going too, you know, you cut me in on the, on right. the publishing, you know, give me 10% of the publishing, I'll, I'll have Perry Como record your song. Right, right sure. And uh, so there were deals made that way. Um, less often, I think, cutting the artist in yeah uh decca had an interesting deal decca had decca coral and brunswick they had three labels right and the the policy up there was um give us a 75 percent rate and we'll guarantee you three versions right wow so take a song like sincerely originally by the moon glows on right. chess records well, they covered it by the McGuire Sisters. It became an enormous hit. Right. Well, there's also a version on DECA by Louis Armstrong. <laughs> wow. There's a version by Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. Wow. So <laughs> that happened very often right. On right. DECA, with DECA. Yeah. Uh, and so the whole system was geared toward exploiting the songs in that way. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it was. It, it, publishing was an interesting thing. I mean, the way I got my first song recorded, uh, Mino World... Uh, I, I was playing a, I was playing a club in Times Square. You know, all those clubs were mob-owned clubs in those days. <laughs> right. And so one night, this this gangster comes in named Morris Spokane was his name, hmm. and he had a little record label. I didn't know this at the time, and he liked the way I sang, so he laid a big tip on me. You know, and and he had this little seventeen-year-old call girl with him, beautiful, beautiful girl. And he said, "You go home with him." So, so I said, listen, you know, you don't have to, after he left, I said, you don't have to go home with me. You know? She says, no, I like you. I want to go home with you. I want to take you home with me. Right. So she did. And she became like a kind of little girlfriend, you know, right. Right, for a while. She used to come in the clubs late at night and pick right. me up and take me wherever. So one night she says, you know, you write really good songs. She says, you ought to do something with them. She said, I'll, I'll, uh, maybe I'll get Morris to see if he'll do something for, with you. So she took me over there, you know, and, and he, he, they made some demos with me. Nothing happened, thank God. 
Right. Because you don't really don't want to get involved with the mob. Right. right. Even at that age, I knew that. Right. Now, is Morris safely dead or incarcerated now so that you can tell the story with him? Yeah, probably okay. he is. You know, yeah. You know, he was pretty old then. So I owe my first. Uh, my first success as a songwriter to a 17-year-old call girl. <laughs> it's a room filled with gloom. I sit and wait by the telephone, but no one cares if I'm all alone. And it's a mean old world. Let me tell you, it's a mean old world when you need someone. You also write about your mom signing you up for voice lessons, which led to you getting an agent and making a record for the Valentine label under the band name The Resolutions. Um, and that was followed soon after by a single on Rust Records in 1962 under the name Billy Vera and the Contrasts. And the B-side was your first commercial release as a songwriter, which was called All My Love. He said he'd give her anything she wanted In the whole wide world, he said all my love if you demand it Anything you want if you command it Just don't ever let me go So looking back now from the vantage point of several decades, how would the adult Billy Vera evaluate the songs that your teen self was writing in terms of your natural instincts? Well, I never thought much about All My Love because I had considered it a B-side. Hmm. But... When I first met Chip Taylor, who became my mentor as a songwriter, uh, and I got a job at uh, this publishing company, April Blackwood Music, mm -hmm. uh, first thing Chip said to me, he says, he says that, that song here is all my love. He said, he said I, I love that song. And years later, I mean, like last year, he was talking to me, he still talks about all my love. Right. Wow. And it, to me, it's just a... It's a cute little song, but I, yeah. I so it made me listen to it in, yeah. as an adult, as you say. Yeah. And I said, "Oh, yeah, it 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 it, it makes some sense. It's uh it's not just some dumb song." <laughs> and 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 already I had these little tricks that I that I have subsequently used to make my songs different. Hmm. You know, I, I always felt that uh that, that you should do something that that surprises the listener, right? Mm. Like in that song, and in, in all, my, it's it's in a key of F. So at the, at the end of the bridge, I think, or somewhere in the bridge, I go to an A flat, mm. which is an out of key chord, mm. right? So it 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 makes the it startles the listener, right? right. And uh, so I've I've often ever since then I've, I've tried to do that. Yeah, mm. makes sense. Which is which is a hard thing to do when you're trying to write kind of pop music because you want to shock people but also make them feel comfortable with where you're taking them. Yes. Well, right? that's that's the key. Yeah. So yeah. sometimes the chord after the A flat is really important. Right? Yeah. You yeah. Move and you're <laughs> right. like, okay, now where am I? Yeah, you don't want to shock them too much. Right. <laughs> right. It it wasn't long after that that you were a staff writer as you as you referenced it at April Blackwood with um, an office right next door to Chip Taylor and. Um, Chip, of course, has been a guest on our show and a uh, great, incredible writer known for Angel of the Morning and Wild Thing and, yeah. you know, iconic songs. But you guys started writing songs together. Um, and I'd love to hear sort of about the the environment of, you know, this was at 1650 Broadway, which was kind of the funkier cousin of the Brill Building. And for guys like us, it just seems like a, a fairy tale world, you know, like this cool 
era of of song professional songwriting. So I'd love to just sort of hear a little bit about like life in that environment and what kind of stuff you and, and Chip were writing in those early days together. I had a tiny little office with a three quarter size piano and a little desk and a phone and uh, and and the first the first song I wrote with Chip there uh, became a hit also. Right. That became Make Me Belong to You by Barbara Lewis. I liked a song called Let Me Belong to You by Brian Hyland. Hmm. Uh, and I love that title. And so I, I just stole it and said, make me belong <laughs> to you. you, know? right. you know, we, we pretty much usually wrote pretty quickly. You know, yeah. We both wrote music. We both wrote words. Hmm. And um, we went and made a little demo of it. And uh, Jerry, Jerry Typher, who was the, the head man there, he took it up to Atlantic. And that was our intro to the great Jerry Wexler. Yeah. But it, it was cool. You know, there were a lot of songwriters. We had a, Chip had, had, had a band in high school with a fellow named Ted Darrell. Mm-hmm. And Teddy, uh, Teddy wrote, he was the first one of us that had a hit. So Teddy and I, we used to always go have lunch together. Right. But one day he was late coming down to lunch, so I go up to the 12th floor to get him. Yeah. Because I was hungry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I go in the office and there's a bunch of guys. They're they're looking out the window with binoculars and I said, "What's going on?" And one guy says, "Hey man, check out room 426." So they were looking in the rooms, the yeah. hotel rooms. It was across the City Squire <laughs> Hotel was across the right. street. And the, one guy says, "Oh my God, that's holy shit! That's Rex fucking Harrison. <laughs> He's banging some chick <laughs> in room 426." <laughs> So everybody's watching him, man. Everybody's late to lunch. Everybody's late to lunch. And so Rex gets finished, and this guy named Reed Whitelaw, he was a songwriter, and uh, he calls up the hotel. He says, oh, uh, Mr. Harrison's room, 426, please, Mr. Whitelaw. So we're we watching him, and, and Rex, he's naked. You know, he, he answers the phone, and, and everybody applauds. And, and Reed goes, Sterling performance, Mr. Harrison. That's incredible. And he and he smiles and he and he's he takes a big bow <laughs> at the window. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, somehow in that environment, you guys actually you managed actually to get some. some we yeah. actually got some work get done. Get some songs written. Um, one of the songs that you wrote during that time was "Don't Look Back," which was cut by Barry and, and the Remains. Don't you try to find And that was a song that was not successful at the time, but yeah. was later revived uh, on one of the legendary Rhino Records Nugget compilations and was also covered by uh, by Robert Plant. Um, being a songwriter means a lot of, you know, near misses and disappointments and the occasional stroke of uh, good fortune every now and then, as was the case with Don't Look Back coming with some delayed gratification. 
Um, but I understand one of the ones that that got away, so to speak, was Wild Thing. Oh yeah. Well, one one afternoon, uh, I I was getting ready to leave because I had a gig up in Stamford, Connecticut that night with my band. And Chip said, "Oh man, uh, you gotta stay. Uh, these these guys, the Wild Ones, are recording tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. and they don't have enough songs." He said, "Anything we write, we'll get on the session." Hmm. I said, dude, I can't wait, man. I got, I, you know, the band can't perform without the singer. Right. You know, I got to work. So I left and I went and made my $15 right. <laughs> with the band. So about a year later, this record comes in from England. And it was the Trogs version of Wild Thing. Yeah. And of course, it became this great big <laughs> right. hit, you know. Right, right. But you know... I, if I had written it with him, it wouldn't have been the same song. Right. Hmm. Right. And right. it probably would have been done, you know, would have gone the way of any of them. So yeah. Yeah. That you never predict. Well, and those $15 today would be more like 45 Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So there's that. Well, that's like the time, that's like the time that this, this woman uh, asked me to sing a demo. She worked, she was the mistress of Freddie Beanstalk, who was. Oh, uh, Elvis's. Yeah. 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 And, and so she, she occasionally would get an Elvis song. And so I go in there and I record it, uh, the demo, and I'm thinking, this is the worst f song I ever heard in my life. <laughs> so somehow this song, Rubbernecking, got recorded, and it was in a movie. Yeah. Elvis movie. A terrible song. <laughs> it, it got remixed and remade. And it became number 10, one record in England yeah. 40 years later. <laughs> right, right. You know? Yep. And Billy Vera was the man who sang the demo. Well, yeah, they they paid me. It was a thirty-five dollar date, you know, and 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 I get a check for thirty-five dollars with Elvis's picture on the check. <laughs> what? Yeah, and I said to myself, even then I was hip enough to know. I said, that Colonel, he's slick, man. He knows how a lot of people won't cash the check because they want the <laughs> oh my memento. Gosh. Well, I needed the 35 bucks, dude. <laughs> I wish I had that check today, of course. Yeah. You know, I'd frame it, man. Oh, that's so funny. Well, see, that's like 90 bucks today. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> It'd be a lot more with, in the collector's market on, on eBay. <laughs> um, so one of the songs that you and Chip wrote together that did become a hit was Storybook Children, uh, which you recorded as a duet with Judy Clay in 1967. Why can't we be like In a wonderland Where nothing's planned For tomorrow That became a top 20 R&B single. Talk about how that song came together and how you ended up as a recording artist on Atlantic Records. Well, one uh, morning, let's see, we came in there and, uh, and he had this title, Storybook Children. We wrote it pretty quickly, maybe... 20 minutes, less than a half hour for sure. Hmm. And uh, we had the idea, let's, now that we've had this hit on Atlantic, let's take it to Jerry Wexler, maybe get a couple of Atlantic artists to do a duet on it. Yeah. So we made a demo with this girl that uh, had sung with my band a few times and uh, bring the demo up to his office. And uh, he said, before you play me what you got, I, I got to show you what I just did down in Muscle Shoals. I signed fucking Aretha Franklin. <laughs> I said, oh, man, she's a great singer. So he played me I Never Loved a 
Yeah. Man, right? I said, my God, how are we going to follow that? <laughs> right. I mean, it's an incredible record. <laughs> I'll come back tomorrow. <laughs> but he, but he, 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 he could compartmentalize. Yeah. You know, and so we played him our record, and he pounded his fist on the desk. That's a fucking smash, man. Mm. Mm. Get rid of the girl in the demo, and I'll record <laughs> you on Atlantic Records. Well, wow. I mean, Atlantic Records was to me was that was where the gods lived. Yeah. So now we had to go looking audition other girls and we went through about 20 of them and they all sounded like they should be singing Stephen Sondheim songs I right. mean, it was it was really horrible right and uh, we were just about to give up and Wexler calls up one day and he said hey we 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 just got this girl Judy Clay she's a cousin of Dionne Warwick why don't you take a listen to her great okay we made an appointment she shows up and she was a rather large woman Right. And she was about 14 months pregnant. <laughs> and she had a chip on her shoulder the size of Wyoming. Because everybody in the family, Dion Warwick, Dee Dee Warwick, Sissy Houston, they had all been yeah. successful. Right, they, right. And Judy was the lead singer of their family gospel group, the Drink Art Singers. Hmm. And she was bitter. Yeah. You know, but she sang her ass off. And so after she left, they said, well, yeah, she sings great, but, you know, think you can handle that attitude. <laughs> I said, yeah, well, I got a sister like that. You know, <laughs> you know, I, I understand that, that rage. Yeah. You know, I understand that underneath that gruff exterior lies a scared little girl. Mm. And so, and I was right uh, for once. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we got along well, and we recorded the song, and it came out nice. Yeah. So we get an offer to go and play the Apollo Theater. Well, I had been a customer at the Apollo Theater. I mean, I was there the week James Brown made that famous live album. Oh, wow. I saw that show. Wow. Jeez. Yeah. So we get there. In those days, it was a, you did five shows a day, seven days a week. And Honey Coles of the great dance team, Coles and Atkins, was the stage manager. And he put us on second. Well, that's the worst spot in a show mm-hmm. because it's usually for new acts or acts that are not so good. Yeah. And uh, he said, listen, I got an idea. He said, Harlem hasn't seen you yet. He said, uh, so what I want you to do, he said, Judy, you enter from stage right, and Billy, you enter from stage left, and you let her take three steps, and then you make your entrance and watch what happens. So I'm, we, they start playing you know, our song and... One, two, three, I enter. I hear <gasps> like fifteen hundred people gasping. <laughs> and the record's already a hit in New York. Right. Yeah. But you know, there's no pictures of us anywhere. Right. right. He's white. Yeah. <laughs> Who's that little skinny white boy? That's him. I can hear people go, That's him. You know? And well, we went over like gangbusters. Yeah. Wow. And uh and after the first show, Honey comes up to our dressing room and he says, uh, he says, I'm changing up the show. He says, I'm putting you all on right before the star. Wow. He says, because ain't nobody going to follow you two motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> and so that became our spot for the, wow. every time we played the Apollo. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, the fact that we were up there singing the love song, mm-hmm. you know, not just singing, hey, let's boogie. You know, right. <laughs> it was yeah. a love song. Right. Yeah. So we had another other hit, Country Girl City Man. And then, and then, uh, Wexler called me backstage at the Apollo, and he said, listen, uh, 
the the distribution deal between Atlantic and Stacks. You know, Judy was signed to Stacks. Right. The distribution deal is over. Yeah. He said, you guys can't record together anymore. Well, you, you talk in your book about how once your Atlantic deal had, had come to an end, um, the 70s were kind of a, a lean time in a lot of ways. You, you, to you say the least. Reference, you know, singing <laughs> demos and taking, you know, whatever gigs just to kind of like um, keep, keep things going. Um, yeah. But that doesn't mean that you didn't have interesting uh, things happen in your life in the 70s. I understand that when Ronnie Spector left uh, Phil that she became your girlfriend for a little while which i find fascinating to my friends i was a man among men <laughs> well what happened was we were i i, I had uh, there were a series of oldie shows at the academy of music on 14th street in new york and uh i had the house band yeah and so one time they they hired uh, you know ronnie and and two uh ronette like <laughs> girls substitute Ronette the Ron yeah that she didn't have to pay much money to right. and uh, she said well I'm looking for a conductor I'm going to start working again you know we got together and we got together <laughs> uh, and uh, I started playing for her uh, but it was Ronnie was, was kind of troubled at that time you know mm, yeah. uh, she had a alcohol problem which she subsequently overcame thank god yeah what happened was she was on tranquilizers and so when she drank it, it you know you can imagine yeah, what would yeah. happen it was it was hard eventually it just got to be too much for me and I, sure. I, steve cropper had had called me up and said hey you you know I, I left stacks and i got my own label now i'd love to record you so you know, she fell down on stage once in, in, in Florida, and I said, this is it. I'm, yeah. I'm done. Mm. I went to Memphis and recorded for Steve. Yeah. Subsequently, his his label deal with RCA fell through. Yeah. And, uh, and so that was the end of that. But I, I really enjoyed working with him. Yeah. When I, when I arrived in Memphis, he was just finishing up a Jerry Lee Lewis album for Mercury. And uh, so he asked me to sing harmony on this uh, one song, uh, Jack Daniels' old number seven. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry Lee was a trip, man. You know, he he would. When I met him, he, he he to shake. We shook hands, you know, and and he looked me in the eye with that madman look of his, and yeah. and he squeezed my hand really hard. So I squeezed back, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because with a predator like that, you you you. Um, you can't show weakness, right? You know, you, you show weakness, you're done, right? Uh, you have sort of rubbed elbows and worked with all of these uh, legends in the in the R and B and and rock world, and then suddenly, 1978, you've written a number one country hit <laughs> right. for Dolly Parton. Uh, I really got the feeling. That was a song that you wrote by yourself. 
topped the charts for for Dolly. How did a, a guy primarily known for R and B suddenly end up with this you know big country hit? Well, you know, being a staff songwriter, you 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 know Jerry Typher would knock on the door, and one day he would say, uh, "Hey, uh, the Drifters are recording next week. Write something for them." Hey, Tony Bennett's recording next week. Write something for him. So you learned how to write in all these different genres. Mm. Uh, that's that's all part of becoming a professional songwriter. And also, I really got the feeling it's sort of a pop country song anyway. Mm. And that came about, I had been playing, or I, 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 again, I was doing survival gigs. Right. And one of which was a two-week gig at a Ramada Inn in uh, New Jersey. <laughs> now, if you can imagine Sounds sexy. who your audience is. <laughs> I've on arrived. a Tuesday night in New Jersey, it's like three businessmen, right. traveling salesmen who hate you because <laughs> the waitresses are looking at you instead of them. <laughs> so waitress comes over to me at the end of the set. She says, that fellow over there with his wife would like to buy you a drink. You know, so I go over there and uh, the guy says to me, uh, L. Russell Brown, I wrote Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Olo Tree. <laughs> oh, and I'm thinking, how nice for you. you know? <laughs> and... And he says, Vera, he says, you know, you're one of the great singers. You're one of the great songwriters. Everybody in the business knows how great you are. But you never make any money. Uh, thanks, <laughs> thanks. For, uh, <laughs> thanks for telling me that, you know. <laughs> and he says, you know, me, I make a lot of money and nobody respects me. <laughs> Want to trade? <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. So he says, I got an idea. He said, he said we... We should write together. You know, I, I could teach you how to make money and you could teach me how to get respect. <laughs> so I started hanging out at his house. He lived in New Jersey. Yeah. And I, I would drive down there in the daytime sometimes and we'd we'd write and the guy had a lot of energy, you know. Mm. He he'd write sometimes we'd write two, three songs a day. Right. Wow. So he uh he says, I got a gig, uh, Charlie Colello, my friend, he got me a gig producing a session for Nancy Sinatra. Yeah. He said, uh he said, I need another song for the date. He says, I got to go pick up my wife at the beauty parlor. He says, well, why don't you start something while I'm gone and, you know, we'll, we'll finish it up when I get back. I said, yeah. great. So I'm thinking, what do you write for Nancy Sinatra, you know? Oh, she got this famous father, right? I love my daddy, but it really don't matter what my daddy might say, you know. <laughs> uh, when I see your laughing face in the corner of my mind. Lines like that, right? Yeah relating to Nancy. Yeah, sure. And uh, I finished the song by the time he got back and he played the form. He says, my God, he says, the hair's rising on the back of my neck. He said, this is the number one song if I ever heard one. Yeah. He said, I I'm going to play it for her tomorrow. So he plays it for Nancy. She doesn't like it. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> so I, my friend Crazy Joe had this little country band up in Connecticut and he had a girl singer so we we go in the studio we recorded it with her yeah started taking it around to record companies and everywhere I go love the song hate the girl love the song <laughs> hate that girl so finally the last guy on my list literally the last guy on my list was this guy Charlie Koppelman hmm. so I go down there and uh Love the song, hate the girl. Right. <laughs> but we're recording Dolly next week. Uh, give me the song for Dolly, and I'll guarantee it'll be the single. 
And uh, so I said, I guess he's serious. Yeah. <laughs> so I go down to St. Croix. I'm playing with my band down there. A couple of dope dealers used to bring their favorite bands down to play for them. Right. They're on the lamb from the government, you know. <laughs> right. And uh, and I'm doing a six-week gig down there. And, and this, I, I get a phone call to come to, to, to L.A. to write songs for Warner Brothers. So I said, all right, I'll do that. Uh, and I'm driving out with everything I own in my car, and every 20 minutes they're playing my song wow. by Dolly Parton. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like Georgie Jessel. I'm back in show business. <laughs> 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 you know? And the day I hit L.A., it's like an omen, man. It's number one. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That's and amazing. so uh, that's not a bad way to hit yeah. a new town. No. You know? Well, and I mean, it didn't take long for you to put together your band, The Beaters. Well, I ran, and, that's because I ran into Chucky, you know, my old bass player. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you guys, from what I understand, this is before our time in, in Los Angeles, but from what I understand, was you were like the live band, and, and you know, you were a horn band that also had a pedal steel in it. I mean, it was just kind of interesting thing and and you had guys coming out of the band like steve fischel who had played in emmy lou harris's hot band uh rick hirsch who i'm assuming is the same rick hirsch that was in wet willie yeah yeah um skunk baxter who'd, who'd played with the doobie brothers and and steely dan um so you got all these killer musicians great band great reputation and your first album with the beaters is a live album um, which spawned the self pen top 40 hit, I Can Take Care of Myself, in 1981. So I understand how the band gets a record deal by being a killer live band, but I find that very interesting that you guys decided to actually make your debut a live record. How did you decide to do that? Well, I, I we had made some demos, and it didn't capture the band. Hmm. They didn't capture the band. And so somebody, uh, whether it was my manager, uh, although Lauren Safer, who was the head of A&R, now claims that it was his idea, <laughs> but one of them said, you know, let's try it live. Yeah. You know, these guys are the greatest live band ever heard, you know. Uh, so we, we did. Uh, we did three nights at the Roxy, and uh, it worked. Yeah. You know, it worked. I mean, guys were playing their asses off, you yeah. know. And that was when the follow-up came out, which was at this moment. Right. Mm -hmm. And it went to number 79. <laughs> Right. Need a little bit of Viagra there. Didn't, didn't stay up. <laughs> so they they did another album, and and Lauren Safer said, "Man, I, there's three great songs in this album, but the rest of it is, it's it's not you. Yeah, hmm. it, it's it's more of a band sounding album than a Billy Vera album." He said, "I want I want to promote you. You're the songwriter. You're the singer." He said, "I, I can't. I'm not going to release this album." I said, oh, fuck, we're fucked now. He said, but I want to do another one. Yeah. I'm willing to do another one. He said, but a different producer. So I said, well, how about my old friend Jerry Wexler? Hmm. 
So uh, Jerry comes out, and uh, he he listens to the band live, doing the songs, and he said, uh, he said, what I want to do is I want to take you to Muscle Shoals, put together a band down there. And boy, so right away the rhythm section quit, <laughs> and it, it hurt. Yeah, all of us because they were friends. Yeah. yeah. But I knew I was by this time I'm 35 years old, and I said, "Man, I, I may not. That's old to be a rock star. Right. I may not get another chance." Yeah. And if I insist upon using that band, that's the end of the record deal. They won't. They won't go for it. Mm -hmm. right? And where am I going to get another record deal? Yeah. So we did it. We went down to Muscle Shoals. We made an album. Uh, it was pretty good. It wasn't great. Mm. But there was one great r song on there. And Jerry Wexler, to his dying day, said it was one of the top five records best he ever made, ever mm. produced. Called Hopeless Romantic. So call me a hopeless romantic Cause I can still be I can still believe in true love and hopeless romantics still can find a way to make true. Shortly after that, the Japanese pulled the plug on Alpha US, yeah, and that was the end of it. And then I'm without a record deal, man, for like the next. I'm eking out a living as an actor, which most people don't do, right? And uh, and trying to figure out what the rest of my life is going to be like, yeah. And uh, five years later, um, I was still writing songs, still playing trying to get a record, even having no luck. I get a phone call. Hi, I'm Michael Whitehorn. Is this the same Billy Vera that has the band? I said, yes. <laughs> so thank God. He said, I, I didn't know who your agents were. I didn't, I didn't know how to find you. I had my girl calling all over L.A. on every zip code. <laughs> I was in the phone book. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he said, uh, we, we, we saw you at the club the other night. And we heard you do a song that might fit with an episode we have coming up on this show I produced called Family Ties. So I, he didn't know the name of the song. So I, I said, it's got to be at this moment because nobody ever gets the name of that song, right? <laughs> right. So I hum him a few bars. That's it. That's the one. Great. Here, contact Warner Brothers and license the song. And he said, the thing is, so he called me back a few days later. He said, he said I can't use a live version. Because it's a love scene, and I can't have somebody, yeah, sing it, Billy, in the right. middle of a, when he's kissing the girl. Right. So, would you be willing to come in and record it at our expense, you know, for the show? I said, sure. So, we go in and we do. We, guys in my band made a few bucks, you know, yeah. scale. Figured that'd be the end of it. But this time, I get a few letters. I got a bunch of letters. Mm -hmm. Who's the singer? What's the name of the songwriter? Where's the. I said, man, maybe somebody, maybe people like this song. Yeah. So I asked, I called, and made a few calls, see if somebody let me re-record it. 
Nobody was interested in a 35-year-old singer. Right. So I'm having lunch with Richard Foos, who owned a label called Rhino Records. Mm-hmm. Sure. And uh, so in the course of the lunch, I said, hey, Richard, how many records do you need to sell to break even? It's a reissue label. Right. He says, oh, a couple of thousand. I, could. I said, what if I guarantee you a couple? I could sell them in the clubs if I had to. Mm. Yeah. He said, yeah, sure. And, and believe me, he, he only agreed to do it because he liked me. Right. He never thought he was going to make a nickel. <laughs> right, right. So I, I arranged for, I had my lawyer arrange for them to license an album's worth of stuff from Japan. Mm-hmm. And then I, I compiled an album of the songs that the fans liked the best from both of my Alpha albums. Right. And uh, so they put it out. By the time they got it out, they missed the reruns of the show. Right. Nice. <laughs> but then as luck would have it, the following season comes The Girl Breaks Up with Michael J. Fox. He has a flashback where they play the song again. Right. This time, the story of the episode, Boy Loses Girl, is the same as the story of the song, Boy Loses Girl. Right. Right. America goes berserk. What did you think I would say at this moment when I'm faced with the knowledge that you just don't love me? Did you think I would curse you Say things to hurt you Cause you just don't love me no more NBC told us they had more phone calls than any time in the history of the network. And now we got a record out. Hmm. On a label that knows nothing about promoting <laughs> contemporary right, right, records. Right, right. But they, to their credit, they, 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 they got a hold of some promotion guy and I would go into the office every day, and we'd make phone calls, uh, you know, to radio stations. Wow. And I'd do promos. Hi, this is Billy Vera. When I'm in town, I I listen to KRAP, <laughs> you know, eighty-eight nine point nine on your dial. Great to be with the good guys, you know, and all that crap, you know. And, and I would do like so many times. I forget my own name after a right. while. Right. Well. The thing takes off in Hawaii, then Kansas City, and then bing, bang, boom, it's jumping over Madonna, it's jumping over Richard Marks, it's jumping over, right. you know, everybody who was anybody. And uh, and it goes to number one. So here I am, 42 years old now. That's incredible. <laughs> and I got the number one record in the fucking country. <laughs> and, and I go on American Bandstand and... Johnny Carson, right? You know, and uh, and my life changed. Yeah, and suddenly there was a future for me. Yeah, yeah, and um, it was great. <laughs> well, you know, other than than the line, "Did you think I would curse you or say things to hurt you?" Mm-hmm. Um, there are no rhymes in at this moment, and right. even that is rhyming you with you. So I don't really count that. No, it doesn't uh, count at all. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so. You know how I discovered that? I didn't even know there was no rhymes. Really? No. So that was not intentional? Not Absolutely not. Years later, uh, on Facebook, of all things, I met a woman whose grandfather, I think, wrote uh, Moonlight in Vermont. Mm. And she told me, she said, you know, the only two songs I know of that have no rhymes 
is your song and Moonlight in Vermont. Huh. I said, well, uh, the, the two of them didn't do too bad. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But yeah, it was definitely not intentional. Yeah. You have to have a melody that is just killer to get away yeah. with not having rhymes. And well, it has it's not no an repetitive melody. It, it right. travels. So yeah. it can take you, you don't feel like you have to it have It doesn't have lines. your typical hook, you know, verse, chorus, verse, yeah. chorus, yeah. that songs uh, seem to be written in lately. It's back to the 32-bar uh, classic uh, pop song. Right, right. Uh, again, the chord changes are surprises, mm -hmm. too. Yeah. Well, in the wake of At This Moment, you signed a record deal with Capitol and had a top 10 adult contemporary hit with your... Tom Dowd produced song Between Like and Love in 1988. But you also kind of branched out and got into doing some uh, production work for other artists, most notably uh, Lou Rawls, whose 1989 album At Last you co-produced, and that became a number one on the uh, Billboard Jazz chart. Um, one of your own songs on that record, If I Were a Magician, uh, I understand took a little producer manipulation to, to get the performance that you were looking for uh, out of Lou. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, well, that I wrote. Uh, I wrote "If I Were a Magician" with Larry Brown. Mm -hmm. I thought it, you know, might be great for Lou. What I didn't realize going into it was that Lou's forte is not songs that require him to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll never find another love like mine, bitch. <laughs> you know, or your good thing is about to end. I mean. <laughs> he, he likes to win. Right, right. And he's great at that. Yeah. But, man, I couldn't, he, he just couldn't, he couldn't hurt. Yeah. You know, uh, on cue. <laughs> yeah, right. And so what we did, we, we, we took him to dinner. We got him drunk. <laughs> I mean, we got him bad drunk. <laughs> and the next day he comes in with a terrible hangover. Right. And he was vulnerable. <laughs> <laughs> and he sang that song really well. <laughs> That's amazing. If I were a magician, I would make him disappear. I would simply snap my fingers, and he would be gone from here. I'd wave my wand, and from now on, you belong to me. Oh, if I were a You'd still be here with me. And I hear that you have a, a great Ray Charles story from those sessions as well. He came in to do a duet. Oh yeah, yeah. We, we part of the idea was to bring in some great soloists and bring in some duet partners. And uh, what about Ray? And I'm like, you know, that'd be really cool. So I I, I picked uh, an old Sam Cooke song. Uh, That's where it's at. And so we recorded the tracks, and we recorded Lou in New York, and then we came out here. I brought the tape, the the, the you know the twenty four track, out here, and and Ray wanted to record in his own studio, and so he takes the tape from me, and he puts it on the machine, and he threads the tape. This is a blind man. <laughs> it's crazy. And he plays the tape, and he's listening. And he said, oh, that sounds like Fathead on the sax solo. I said, yeah, it was Fathead Newman that used uh, to play with Ray's yeah. band. I said, yeah, yeah, we wanted to use Fathead on this one. He said, you know, that solo should go eight bars earlier. And 
he stops the tape and he takes out a razor. He cuts my ten thousand dollars session. And also blind, still blind, still blind. <laughs> and he, he somehow manages to move that solo earlier, eight bars earlier. Oh my gosh! And you know what? The How's... son of a bitch was right. It did sound better, and he did it perfectly. That's amazing. Yeah, that's why How they call that him the genius. That's crazy. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's wow. nuts. Obviously, our our show is about songwriting, but there are so many uh, kind of fascinating parts of, of your life and all the things that you've done. Um, I personally was really stoked to find out you were the guy that sang the King of Queens uh, song because my wife and I used to watch that show all the time. And I'm like, well, that's Billy Vera. That's the same guy that's at this moment guy. I, I was really stoked. That to, was to like discover. having a hit record. <laughs> yeah. Because the because what happened was a friend of mine called me up. He said, hey, Billy, uh, Bob, I, I just took over as head of music at uh, Columbia Pictures, and we got this new show. Come to lunch with me. So I go to lunch with him. He says, we got this new show about a UPS driver, you know, fat guy. It's basically the honeymooners uh, brought up to date. Right. Fat guy, hot wife, you know. <laughs> and uh, That's my life. He said, we got a song. <laughs> we got a song. He said, I, I want to know what you think about it. So he plays me the song in his car, you know. I said, well, I said, this song's about a UPS driver, a blue-collar guy. What you got here is, is Paul Simon's idea of what a country song should sound like. <laughs> it's wrong. Right. right. I said, well, yeah, it needs to be dumber, man. You know, it, it's... Uh, he said, you think you could do it? I said, well, yeah, if you let me use the beaters, I could do it. You know, we play dumb better than anybody. <laughs> I know dumb. I know dumb, baby. <laughs> so, uh, so you know, he had, he had us come in, and we did it in two takes. The singer gets paid every episode. Yeah. Nine years, baby. <laughs> and syndication. Yeah, it's still on. It's still amazing. on. I still get money. It's great. It's almost like an acting performance, though, because you, com- you play a completely different character in that vocal. Yeah. Then well, you do that when you're work. writing a song too, you know, because yeah. you're writing, you know, like if, if you're writing for the Shirelles, you're writing as a woman yeah. or yeah. a girl. You're writing yeah. as a young girl. If you're writing, you know, you you're you're actually got to put yourself in that character. Right. Yeah. Which kind of makes sense, you know, to think about the fact that you are an actor and that you've done all this voiceover work, yeah. and you know, it's it, there's a a thread that runs through all that in a way of being able to adopt a certain voice perspective, you know, play, play this character, so to speak, even in, in song. Um, the, the one last thing I want to ask you before we let you go is, is, you know, you are a, a respected music historian and I'm kind of a aspiring, uh, respected music historian. <laughs> I aspire to be respected. Um, but you know, you, you've, you've done all these reissues that you've produced. You've, uh, written liner notes. You, um, you know, I've gotten several Grammy nominations and and a Grammy win for for liner notes. But I understand that it was because of your work on some Percy Mayfield material that you actually wound up getting audience with the the songwriter of songwriters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, my manager at the time of, and and in the wake of uh, at this moment was a fellow named uh, Sandy Gallon. And every year, Sandy would throw a Christmas party. And it was a very elaborate thing, all a lot of these A-list people. You yeah, know? yeah. And, you know, I'm kind of shy at parties. You mm. know, if I'm introduced to somebody, I'm cool. Yeah. But I, I always say to people, 
if I wasn't a musician, uh, I'd still be a virgin. You know, <laughs> I, I just. <laughs> so at any rate, here I am. I, I get there. I, you know, Dolly was acting as as the hostess, and so I'd do five minutes with her, and and I do five seconds with Neil Diamond. You know, and, and and I don't know anybody else. Yeah. So I'm sitting at the bar drinking a Pepsi. That's my drink of choice. <laughs> And this woman I kind of knew comes up to me at one point in the party. She said, hi, Billy, it's Carol. Uh, uh, you know, Bob would like to say hello to you. I'm thinking, Bob who? I don't know. I look <laughs> over, it's fucking Dylan. Wow. wow. He sits down at the bar with me, and and he says, uh, you know, I, you're one of my favorite actors. <laughs> and he names a couple of things I was acting wow. in, right? Wow, really? <laughs> You know, not, it doesn't say anything about my music. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> but, but how then, Dylan is that, by the way? <laughs> totally. <laughs> right. So, so I assume he didn't like my music. <laughs> but uh, then he says, uh, "You know those Percy Mayfield CDs you produced?" He said, "He said I, I love them. I, I play them all the time." And Percy is, you know, I called him the poet of the blues. And, he's, and Dylan says, you know, you were right when you called him the poet of the blues. He's the greatest lyricist hmm. in the history of the, of the blues. Yeah. I said, I agree. And, and so we spend the next two and a half hours talking wow. about Percy Mayfield wow. and the brilliance that, are, that is Percy. Wow. I mean, a guy that writes lyrics like, if you would be so kind to help me find my mind, I want to thank you in advance. <laughs> know this before we start. My soul's been torn apart. I lost my mind in a wild romance. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's a great lyric. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, while we're having this conversation, all these A-list assholes are coming up to him. You know, the <laughs> Ryan and Farah and Shirley MacLaine and Madonna, and he's blowing them off. Wow. Like he don't give a flying fuck about these people, man. Because he's Bob Dylan, right? right. And they're up there ready to kiss the ring, you know? Right. right. He don't want to talk to them, man. It's incredible. He, wants, he, he could care less if he ever saw them again. Right. Right. He, you know, oh, when you're man. Bob Dylan, you don't right. have to, you don't matter. Right. But he wants to talk about Percy May. If I could, Percy was long dead by this time, but if I could have introduced him to Percy Mayfield, I would have been a friend for life. Yeah, I was about oh, to yeah. say, yeah. Well, uh, Billy Vera, quite a remarkable career and a remarkable life. And of course, uh, Harlem to Hollywood and the documentary soon to follow. A lot so, going on. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's awesome. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So definitely want to encourage the listeners to uh, go out and get that book. Or, you know, I guess you don't go out and get books anymore. But go go on Amazon yeah. and get the book. And, uh, uh, Billy, thank you so much for being a part of this and, and joining us here. We will never yeah. sweep this room again. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you. So please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can find us by searching for Songcraft Show. And we look forward to getting together again with you next time for Songcraft, Conversations with Great Songwriters.